Chapter Two of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada, Chapter Two, eighteen eighty four, Regina. The year of our Lord, eighteen eighty four, was a very busy year for me. In addition to the work in the commissioners and adjutants' offices. I had the work in the post and its interior economy to look after, and the training of men and horses to supervise. My outside staff consisted of Sergeant Major Robert Belcher, now Lieutenant Colonel Strathcona's horse, and Staff Sergeant Walter Simpson, ex-Staff Sergeant Royal Artillery, and two old-fashioned soldiers such as these could be trusted to render good and loyal service without having to be watched. For the horses, I employed Constable Montague Baker, who was probably the best rider in the post, and for the clerical work of the division, I had a smart young corporal named S.G. Mills, who subsequently obtained a commission, and after his retirement was visited by a terrible affliction, the loss of his sight. I am glad to know that, in spite of his troubles, he is today a happy and prosperous citizen of Hamilton, Ontario. Montague Baker was a very useful man, and I finally appointed him to be Sergeant Major of the newly formed Division K in the autumn of the rebellion year, when the strength of the force had been increased to 1,000 men. I was sorry to learn the other day that he had recently joined the majority. In the summer of 1884, I made two notable engagements. Two men named Charles Ross and G. P. Arnold presented themselves saying that they had crossed the line to homestead near Moose Jaw, but had come to the conclusion that farming conditions were hardly favourable, and that they proposed to join the mounted police. I sent them to Dr. Jukes for medical examination, and presently the old gentleman came across the square. "'Do you know that those men you sent to me for examination are very fine specimens of muscular manhood, but that they bear the scars of bullet wounds?' "'How do you account for them, doctor?' I queried. "'Oh, well, they say that they have worked as scouts for the United States troops "'and have been wounded in scraps with the Indians and so on.' "'All right, doctor,' I replied. "'If they have seen shots fired in anger, they are the men for my money, "'and if you say they are sound, I shall engage them "'and take chances on their respectability.' "'I had no occasion to regret doing so, "'and did not bother my head about their past history.' They were dead shots, they could ride anything with hair on, they did not drink, and they were not afraid of work. What more did a man want? Ross was, after a time, sent to Calgary, and Arnold to Prince Albert in the north. Arnold was killed at Duck Lake, at the outbreak skirmish of the rebellion. He received one bullet wound in the neck, but paid no attention to it, and continued to peg away at the enemy until he was shot through the lungs and that was conclusive. He and Ross were great friends. The latter, early in the rebellion days in the north, whither he was sent, became known as Charlie Ross, the famous scout, and stories were told of him during the fight at Cutknife Creek, how, whenever he had sent an Indian or half-breed to the happy hunting grounds, he would mutter to himself, another for Arnold. With a man who habitually shot wild rabbits with a bullet through the head, in order to avoid spoiling the meat, 
A poor Indian or breed did not stand much chance, so long as there was enough of his dusky carcass visible for Charlie Ross to draw a bead upon. In my company he followed a horse's trail across the prairie for about fifteen miles at a gallop, and it was none too plain a trail either. Another valuable recruit who offered himself for acceptance during the same year was T.J. Kempster, an upstanding specimen of a man who had served as a trooper in the second lifeguards and proved to be a very capable riding instructor. The wild eccentricities of the prairie-bred horse astonished him at the outset, but I induced him to undertake the training of them upon the principles of Monsieur Beaucher of the French army. Montague Baker and he used to work together. Baker, by the way, had a very narrow escape on one occasion, a bronco, that is, an unbroken horse, from the wild and woolly west, a savage brute, who was rather more intractable than his compeers, succeeded in planting a hind foot fairly and squarely in Baker's face, but under Dr. Duke's care he recovered perfectly. In the course of the same year, in company with the lieutenant governor, I visited the famous Bell Farm at Indian Head, which consisted of I forget how many thousand acres. The climate and the country were not, at that time, conducive to any such experiment, and when the rebellion of 1885 broke out, the management were only too glad to hire out their teams and men to the militia department for the transport of stores, etc., at the rate of ten dollars a day. They had, I thought at the time, only one useful practice, which was a regulation requiring all their stables to be locked and the keys returned by nine o'clock every evening to the timekeeper of the establishment, who lived at the headquarter farm. I thought that the principle was so good that I immediately adopted it. Our four stables stood east and west with doors at each end, the eastern end facing the barrack square. I secured the western end with Yale padlocks on the inside, and the eastern end with similar contrivances on the outside, and the stable picket had the keys strapped onto his belt. On September 15, 1884, I received a telegram from Major Bell that in the course of the previous night fifteen horses had been stolen from the Bell farm and driven rapidly southward towards the line. Sergeant Blight and a couple of men from the Regina succeeded in recovering seven of the horses in Montana, and as the tracks of only nine animals could be found on the south side of the Missouri River, it was conjectured that the others had been driven to exhaustion, and some of them possibly drowned in attempting to cross. I asked Major Bell afterwards how it was that the thieves managed to get the horses out of locked stables, and he replied, Oh, we gave up that practice. It became too tiresome. I had an amusing experience with Bell in 1885, when Lord Lansdowne was touring the country in the autumn after the rebellion. The first stop he made in the Northwest Territories was at Indian Head. There I had orders to meet him with an escort of a hundred men, all of whom we could not mount, and there was thus a most incongruous force of men riding in dead axe, that is, heavy wagons, and so on. Mr. Assistant Commissioner Crozier had recently come into Regina, and these were his ridiculous orders. However, on our arrival at Indian Head, Major Bell was promptly on deck, and said, I have chosen a most delightful spot for you to pitch your camp. It is just in convenient view from my drawing-room windows, and I am sure His Excellency 
will be immensely pleased with the prospect. That may be so, Major Bell, I replied, but I have hardly travelled over the fifty-odd miles between this place and Regina to contribute to the aspect of your scenery. Canada holds me responsible for the safety of her Governor-General while he is in my charge, and I have already sent a non-commissioned officer ahead to select a ground for our camp in proximity to the railway station. That is where our camp will be pitched. I am sorry to upset any of your arrangement all the same. We camped, therefore, just behind the station buildings, when the viceregal train came into the station in the very early morning. A sentry was posted at each end of the Governor-General's car, and thinking that everything was seraphic, I slept the sleep of the just. His Excellency told me later in the day that he thought four sections, sixteen men, would be ample escort for him on the forthcoming forty-five-mile ride next day. And so it was that we started out the next morning with a smart escort of sixteen men under Sergeant Kempston en route for Fort Capel via Catepua, where we had luncheon at Father Huguenard's Indian School. From there we went to Fort Capel, where the Hudson's Bay Company had a store, etc., and there His Excellency had a powwow with the Indians of that neighborhood and made them the usual presents of food, tobacco, etc. Thence, at the suggestion of the Hudson's Bay factor, with whom Lord Melgund was driving ahead, we started by a roundabout road to Capel Station on the railway. We rode and rode and rode, and it looked suspiciously as if the factor had lost his bearings. So after a time, His Excellency said to me, Well, Captain Dean, I am in your hands. I think we had better head for our train. I had taken care to provide a scout who knew every inch of that country, and he took us by a bee-line to where the vice-regal train had pulled up westward from Indian Head. The Governor-General was due to address a small deputation on arrival, and he then asked me to dinner. In the year 1884, an incident occurred which recalled to my mind an observation made to me by a very astute Indian named Usope at Crooked Lakes, earlier in the year. He imitated that the Indians fully recognized the power for evil that lay in their hands with regard to the railroad, and it is much to their credit that they have abstained from such mischief during all these past years. Probably, if there was one individual who, more than any other, exercised an influence for good in this respect, it was the Reverend Father Lacombe, O.M.I., for he had great influence with Crowfoot, the honoured chief of the Blackfoot nation, and the Blackfeet made no trouble when the Canadian Pacific passed the northern edge of their reserve. It was pathetic to hear the old man say, in 1905, after the province of Alberta had been formed out of the Northwest Territories amid great ceremonies at Edmonton, they said everything nice about themselves, but never a word about the police or the priests. I replied, Father, you have put the cart before the horse, Everyone who knows anything about it knows that the police would have been of little use without the help of the priesthood. In the month of June it was reported that an iron rail had been found placed across the track at a point about seventy miles west of Regina, and a sergeant, an interpreter, and three mounted men were at once dispatched westward by rail, with orders to work back along both sides of the track. They returned next day, bringing with them three Indian prisoners whom they had arrested on suspicion. 
as i was engaged in investigating the matter it transpired that two of the indians who were assiniboines were brothers and were able and willing to point out the real culprit a passing freight train was detained and men and horses with one of the informers were immediately dispatched westward again two days later they returned bringing in an indian named buffalo calf the brothers had seen him place the rail on the track and he was subsequently convicted on their evidence and sent to the penitentiary for two years the year wore on with never an idle minute until christmas approached and then it became my duty to write the commissioner's annual report for presentation to parliament this entailed about a month's work but the report was duly dispatched to ottawa on christmas eve the montreal gazette was good enough to say that it read like a romance End of chapter 2